Please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Pete Joseph. The impetus for our talk was a series of tracks that Pete's been dropping throughout the spring and summer of 2023, one of which, Utopia, you can listen to at the end of this episode. Before we got to his new music, we discussed Pete's musical upbringing, his connection to classic soul message music, and much, much more. Pete is an artist deeply in tune with his times, which is reflected in the lyrical content of his music. He's also in tune with the lineage his own work springs from, as you'll learn from this talk. It was a pleasure having him on, and I highly encourage you to check out his music. Enjoy. Hello. Lawrence, hi. Oh, listen to that audio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, has been my, this has been my vocal mic for the day, so I thought I'd just kind of pop it over by the uh by the podcast i wanted to start off by uh this isn't necessarily about you and your music but on your spotify profile there is a playlist called the inspirations playlist uh-huh. i wanted to understand a little bit more about your background and obviously we could speak about it as well but there was so much good music packed into that playlist and it inspired me right before our call I sort of went down a YouTube rabbit hole. I found a video that if you're not familiar with it, I'm definitely going to send it to you after we speak, which is um, it's Rotary Connection on a TV show from like 1969 doing Lady Jane. And it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. So that, did I put some, I can't even remember what's on the playlist, but I put some Rotary Connection in there, obviously. And yeah, that's probably a lot of old and a lot of new and in between, I guess. Yeah, some great stuff. That's kind of me, I suppose. Can you tell me a little bit about, and again, not even remembering the specifics, but is the music that you're immersed in and you've been immersed in as an adult, is that the music you grew up with? And if not, where did music start for you and how did you end up in the world of soul? It's absolutely not the music I grew up with. So both my parents were in the church. I grew up singing in the church with both my brothers. By seven, I think I was seven when I, I started going Tuesday evenings and Friday evenings and twice on a Sunday, I'd sing in the Abbey in Bath. For those listeners who don't know, Bath is an old Roman town near, near to Bristol, which is probably the city that in the southwest is more on the map musically, I guess. Although there's been some great music come out, out of Bath and the, the area around Bath as well. But So yeah, I was singing choral music. And my parents, my mum has been a singing teacher, vocal coach for all of her professional life. My dad was a church organist, not in the Abbey, but in a local church elsewhere. That was really, certainly for kind of my early, until I guess I went to secondary school and my taste, your tastes are a bit broadened by, I guess, just the social aspect and what your friends are listening to. That was it. I don't really remember my parents listening 
at all to popular music. Although I strangely have almost these ghostly recollections of certain songs being familiar that I must have heard around about maybe aunties, uncles, and who had much more of a kind of popular music taste. In fact, one of my uncles was really into the blues and another uncle was a touring roadie basically for a lot of his life. I got bits and bobs from them, but it was more or less all classical and choral until I hit my teens pretty much, I think. I do remember when I was 12, the first album that I bought on cassette tape was Michael Jackson's Bad. Uh, and, and that was really the thing that started this kind of dot to dot of the soul musicians out of Motown and Stax and Atlantic. And really, I suppose that was my kind of greatest love as a teenager, really, was growing up with soul music. Although I guess the crossover, like I was a big Wu-Tang fan and I listened a lot to other hip-hop bands, Cypress Hill and some of the kind of classic hip-hop, Sugar Hill and all that kind of stuff. But then there was so much kind of soul in that music as well, particularly with Wu-Tang, with the samples and the way that they would collect those old grooves and old soul records. So it's kind of derivatives of that, but yeah. And the family tree of that kind of then sprawled in, in every direction. Did your parents have a view of your interest in secular music? Was, was it a religious household or that just happened to be a part of your family life? Did they care that you were into hip hop? No, there was a huge amount of freedom. There wasn't, I don't remember anything being said, even when I was listening to music with kind of profanities in and stuff. I mean, nothing was ever said and nothing was ever really pushed. It was just something that they were very involved in the church and there were lots of classical musicians and phenomenal musicians around us and very good friends of my folks and stuff. And I respected all of that and loved it and I still love it now. And I listen a lot to classical music, particularly love Baroque music and occasionally listen to cool music they weren't at all pushy and there wasn't any restriction it wasn't on their radar you know i mean it's a strange thing later on in my career when i have milestones that happen that i guess a lot of people or a lot of people's folks would recognize for example if i play a big stage at glastonbury which is just down the road from here they look like you know i'll be like oh i'm playing at the period stage and playing glastonbury and they, there's kind of tumbleweed moment um, so, so that for them in their world, it doesn't really feature, but they'll watch stuff and they'll support me. And it's, they've always been really supportive of the music. I mean, that, that strikes me. There, there's something maybe healthy in that to be met with a bit of a shrug when you, it must keep, I would think it would have a grounding effect. It's a strange thing, isn't it? With your folks, because even I guess, probably not so much anymore, certainly when I was younger and in my twenties and stuff, I guess there's always a part of you that's looking for that. I don't know, validation or something. So it's always different coming from your parents, I guess. But it's actually, strangely, something I've always loved about my partner is that she's not at all, she's totally nonplussed about it, which I do find <laughs> really grounding. And I think it's a really great, it's a really great thing. It feels like it's quite separate. It's very easy and as a musician. I've found it very easy for my musical persona, personality, validation, all of that kind of thing, to become wrapped up with your personality as just as a human, as a person in your kind of daily life. And I think it's quite good to have that separation. In a way, the fact that my folks aren't that into it and stuff, it's, it's cool because it can be quite intense, you know, hanging out with musicians all the time and doing music all the time. So it's kind of cool. Outside of singing at church and being in the choral group, which I imagine involved some level of like 
rehearsal and instruction and preparation. I've seen you described as a multi-instrumentalist, but I also had the conception that you were primarily a sort of a stringed instrument, a guitar bass person. So what role did music instruction play in your life? And what was the first instrument you picked up? And do you identify as an instrumentalist of a, like, do you think of yourself as a pianist or a guitarist or a bass player? Like what's, what's your self-conception? That's a tough question for me now, because I don't think I do really think of myself as any one of those things. Mm. I would probably describe myself as a creator, first and foremost, and a maker. Just my domain really is the studio, and I do lots of live shows, and I have played a lot live in the past, although I'm doing less of that these days for other people. I was a session player for years before I even released my music. It's tough, you know, I go through periods, I guess. I go through periods where I play a lot of piano. I go through periods where I'm obsessed with the guitar in one form or another. I mean, I had, I learned flamenco guitar for years, traveled Spain and got really intensely into that thing. I don't think I'd describe myself as any one of those things. I always find it a difficult question when somebody asks, what, what do you do in music? Because I, I kind of do what, I just do what I'm doing at that time. And that's what I'm in, in, intense, probably a bit obsessive about or, yeah, just the thing that I'm immersed in that moment. In terms of the first thing, the first instrument that I picked up, it was the, tri well, it was the cornet. So basically a trumpet, you know, a valved brass instrument. And I did that for years. And that was the thing that I, I guess, looking back, I kind of achieved it, if that, if that makes yeah. sense, like competitions and I did grades and all of that stuff. But yeah, I played piano for probably similar kind of time to when I started singing in the, in the choir. I was, I was having classical piano lessons, but to be honest, that didn't last very long. It, it didn't really suit my style of learning. I, I found it, I found it quite hard to practice. And I found my teacher was, she was super old school, very authoritarian, and it didn't last very long. In fact, my, the way that my mum recounts this story is that my piano teacher kind of sacked me. She said to my mom, I'm not teaching you anymore because she found it frustrating, I guess, that I could do stuff, but I didn't practice and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, and so after that point, it became way more informal. I just listened to stuff and my whole thing was ear, just using my ear and I'd pick stuff up and just repeat it. And I, I used to see it as a challenge, really. Someone would play something and I'd be like, okay, I can do that. I can pick that up straight away and I'll play a line. And, and so that was how from that moment on really so i guess when once i hit teens that was how my music making developed from that point was just intuitive and lots of listening and lots of playing and connecting with other musicians which ever since that time has always been the way that i've loved making music and it was you're getting into playing with west african musicians and core players in particular that is the entire grounds of the communication i mean nothing's written down you don't get a chart the first chorus player i played with a guy called musica kuyate who's from senegal he'd barely wait he'd just start there'd be no kind of count no, no no nothing and i just have to catch what he was doing and i used to love it i used to love the excitement and the spontaneity very quickly became really intuitive and oral um, yeah. after a brief experience of kind of reading music. Although I still read music now and I still, when I'm scoring stuff, I can write a score and I, that's part of my work is, yeah, I do do that and I do that for other people, other artists. But that comes from the choir, you know, that comes from having to sight read every week as a kid 
and you, that just sticks with you forever. It was the best grounding in lots of ways, particularly with being able to read dots and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that about the old school teacher style. I had very similar experience with taking piano lessons. And I don't think I sat at the piano to play it for like the first year of lessons. It was just in those workbooks, like dots and mm. circles. And it was the most unfun thing you could ask a child to do. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's coming through now. I mean, in our education system, it's, I don't know whether you call it like a kind of dying art, even the one-to-one -one stuff that is, is not that, which is potentially problematic for certainly our universities have been hit because the classical courses that aren't the very, very top conservatoire courses are lacking people wanting to go and study that stuff because I guess it's just not happening and Maybe we're past that point of making kids sit down for long periods of time doing stuff that they're not enjoying doing. So I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are phenomenal teachers out there who make that stuff fun and, and who manage to get people reading almost without them noticing. I'm sure there are people who you know, teachers that do that, but it wasn't the case for me. I actually found my teacher quite scary, if I'm honest. You know, I used to go there and I used to be quite fearful because I was quite shy and nervous. I'd Looking back, I was probably quite anxious, actually, as a kid. And I, I found her really, you know, I used to go, this, this is huge kind of Victorian, dark Victorian house. She had tons of cats. She must have 10 plus cats. And used to wait in this little drawing room. It's like something from a kind of Charles Dickens novel. And then I'd go up to this dark room with this big grand piano and just used to scare the life out of me. And she'd, if I got stuff wrong, she'd jump up and down and shout at me. I'm scared for you. <laughs> oh, man. It was a scary experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to watch it evolve, though, because as I watched my son get into piano lessons, his environment was much different. He went to a music school where from day one, they sat him at a piano, but they also sat him at other instruments and devices. So when they were talking about rhythm, they had him sit at a drum. They actually had him pick up bass for a little while. Like it was piano lessons, but the idea was like discovering music and discovering what it was that you were connected to and then fanning that flame. It was much more organic and the kind of thing where, you know, as someone who went through it firsthand, like I don't ever remember trying to chase him to practice. It was fun for him to do. And it was so nice to see a young person have that relationship with not just with music but with the learning was it was very it's sort of beautiful i mean that sounds super healthy right Tra transferring skills to different instruments was just something that i enjoy so much in my practice when i'm writing songs you flip to another instrument and suddenly it's another world and it's another bunch of possibilities that sounds great i don't know what his teacher was like where he was studying but that connect that personal connection is massive the way I'm describing this to you now, I just didn't have that with that person. But then strangely, my older brother totally did. He was like same teacher and he just flew and he plays piano. He could sight read anything now and he plays amazing classical piano. And he was just a personality thing, I think, where he was just, he could just do that stuff. He wanted to sit there and practice. But it, that's something else maybe that we're recognizing much more in young people is just the the difference in personality and the difference in learning style, you know? Yeah. And being able to, and being willing to meet them where they are. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. And, and when I talk to my mum about this stuff now, she'll, she says to me, oh, if I'd known now what I knew back then, easy to say the world was different in the 80s, right? But perhaps it would have gone in a different direction. In fact, she's, she, she kind of maintains now that she probably would have sent, wouldn't have sent me to a mainstream, mainstream school, which is interest, an interesting thing because we're going through this with my son, Art. I bring down here to this space where I'm sat now and we just, I just let him bang stuff and hit stuff and it goes from one instrument to another. And that's just the way that he's discovering making music as well as listening lots to music and just singing all the time. The early signs are that he's totally got the bug and I don't want to preempt anything and there's certainly no, there's no pressure. Yeah, he's, he has it. Feels like it runs through him, the, the music thing and in that very intuitive kind of informal way. So, you know, it's really interesting, not only as we talk about our personal experiences with music instruction, but something I've observed in other people sort of, I think I might be a few years older than you, but of our general generation is that a lot of people had that similar old school experience, especially with piano lessons. But the interesting thing is some people stuck with piano lessons for a long time. Other people bounced out but I don't think I know anybody for whom it damaged their love for music. And that's very interesting. The, the power of that is like, even those scary, anxiety-ridden, truly like when you're a young person, like terrifying or very uncomfortable experiences, it didn't rub off on the love for music. That's interesting, isn't it? I'm also thinking as you're speaking about, it, it, are there other ways in which some of those formative experiences had effects on them? And it's probably, or may, maybe even more likely that it would have affected general confidence development in other areas, but music is something that certainly for most people I know, and definitely for me and musician friends, is it just runs through your life and is the soundtrack to your life. And it's something that in there's so many different pockets and ways that we engage with music and it's an inescapable, isn't it? It's an interesting thing that because there, there, are, there were a few formative experiences for me musical experiences thinking about it so it definitely didn't damage my love for music but i think looking back probably had effect for example on my confidence to stand up and talk or stand up and perform or those kind of things because i guess it's one thing loving music and listening to music is a very different thing wanting to walk on stage and do this crazy thing that we do in front of sometimes tens of thousands of people you know it does occasionally seem really surreal this thing that we do and that i do that i mean talking about glastonbury pyramid stage yeah. uh, walking out onto that stage wait, waiting in the wings i think lana del rey was on after us and somebody i can't remember who was on before us but i was playing with, with kelly's so I, I used to play primarily play bass in kelly's band for a couple of years yeah, I remember almost having a kind of out-of-body experience, stood at the side of the stage thinking, this is insane. This is like 80,000 people or something. Or I don't know how many people fit in that main bowl kind of section of the Glastonbury Pyramid. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. It's a sea of people. I mean, it's as far as you can see. And um, yeah, I do remember having that moment thinking, this is crazy. This is insane. But also this sense of like euphoria at the same time, almost being in myself, but out of myself. It's a crazy experience. Was it a good performance? Was it good? Did you come off stage and say, we did it? Yeah, we totally did. At that day, we totally did, which is kind of weird because we were up, I was up all night in the bus 
with the horn section doing the kind of dj game everyone playing the track and everyone else rating your choice of track whilst drinking if i remember quite a lot of whiskey so we were all kind of feeling we were worse for wear definitely maybe it was the night before that made us play so so well because it's so much about the bond and the connection and about that touring touring is so much about that momentum of the party and the way that you connect as musicians and the way that you connect with the crew and how the crew support you and it was an amazing crew and we, we all came off feeling feeling great and it was a big band big horn section so every time we got on stage it just felt huge big sound yeah yeah it's not that often that you get to do those huge gigs with big bands you know does your anxiety or your experience with anxiety ever manifest in regards to live performance or are you confident what's the lead up to stepping on stage like for you these days it is way less of a thing but for much of the time that i was touring it could be really really bad yeah like kind of crippling bad it, to to the point where you know on that same tour actually because we did tv and we did you'll probably know the jules holland show which is a big deal over here on the kind of circuit of things to do and it's high pressure stuff because it's live 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 you know I remember being on the phone to Kelly, my partner at the time, and just doubting whether I could do whether I could get through it. It was a big, big performance nerves that have been a big part of the journey for me and learning how to overcome those nerves. A whole multitude of ways that I could probably talk a half a day about. But I do feel like I've got to a point where I can enjoy and I can control or I have some control over the way that I can meet that performance because that's the hard thing when you feel like anxious about that stuff is that control goes and you feel out of control and you feel sometimes unsure about whether you really could be able to deliver that stuff. I mean, that Jules Holland performance, the, the live version of the show, like I said, they, record, they do a recorded version and a live version and they wanted to, I stood quietly at the back, I was playing bass, I was like pretty happy. And there's this Kelly's at the front looking super glamorous and the backing vocals next to her. There's this amazing woman who works for the BBC who does the pre-production day the day before. And so she stops performing, she's like, oh, this tune's, this tune's really heavy on the bass, right? It really features the bass. So we're going to move the backing vocals back to the back of the stage and we want you to come forward to stand next to Kelly's and we're going to start the show on your fingers and then we're going to zoom you know zoom them out and of course part of me is like oh no well, this is the worst you know this is the worst thing that could happen yeah but somehow that thing and the adrenaline and one of the things that i've learned to, to use just to combat those feelings is just the pure enjoyment of the music and the playing and focusing on that aspect of it and because the moment you step out of that and start thinking about what people are thinking or what the audience are thinking that's one of the ways that you can come unstuck. And I think that was probably it, you know, just enjoying what I was doing. I had a really interesting conversation about this thing about nerves with one of my West African friends, a guy called Sura Suso, who I played for a long time with just a piano and Cora duet. And I remember saying to him, oh, I feel really nervous before this performance. We were going out on stage. It was a concert hall type situation, so pretty controlled and pretty pin drop quiet. And I remember explaining this to him and him just filing, finding the concept of me feeling like that completely alien. And I was chatting to him about it and saying, well, 
how do you approach it, whatever. And he was explaining that because in, in their culture, the whole way that he's been brought up in the family that he comes from. So you have, you still have in West Africa, particularly Senegal, Mali, Gambia, Ivory Coast, this really strong musical tradition where you have certain families and certain family names where their whole role in society is to tell the story of their history and their traditions through music. Like in Jajuka, guitars, guitars, yeah. Yeah, and there's a French name for it. It's griot in, in mm-hmm. West Africa, I think. There's a bunch of different dialects and languages over there. I think they call, they would call it in Senegal, they would call it like gaolo, I think. But anyway, the whole thing is that they're cultural ambassadors. And he was describing this thing, well, all I'm doing is I'm channeling something, my history, and the whole purpose of my performance is to tell these stories and it's about the audience and it's about that channeling it was fascinating because it's almost like he's describing a complete removal of self or the ego to the point where this stuff's just flowing through him which i found i found it useful actually because a lot of this stuff for me came down to yeah the relationship with ego and the impression that other people are getting from you what they that what are they thinking thing it's like actually if you're just serving the music and you're serving the history and the culture or maybe the meaning of the song or something, you know, whatever other element that you're channeling, that can be super useful. What was coming up for me as you were saying that was, first of all, it makes complete sense to hear a musician of that tradition have that perspective. Like, I, it's almost, it's like, it's his innate role. It's his life. It's his vocation. It's his almost expectation it's his place in his society to to do that so why would he be concerned about that and the channeling of the tradition and the history that that's that to me is interesting when you think about it in the context of a western musician in what i would broadly call like the pop idioms right i know you're not necessarily making top 40 pop music but you're in a popular tradition it's interesting to think what is your role in that history there's so much music that comes together through rock and popular music and so many traditions that come into it, whether it's black, white, American, European, African, like mm. it's almost, it, it almost begs the question of like, what history are you channeling? Are you channeling all the history? <laughs> you know, it's more like you're a prism and, and less of a channel and more of a prism. Wow. I mean, that's kind of beautiful image as well the image that this prison, this light is coming through and refracting and creating kind of multiple colors. I mean, I'm a fan of learning and playing covers and I always have been in the past. Mm. And whenever I used to play Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, if I was playing a set, I used to do lots of stuff with piano bars and stuff. So week in, week out, you're doing a lot of playing. And so sometimes it's kind of hard to get up for it. You might be tired and you've been working on other stuff in a day and you turn up to the the bar and and there was something about that song and channeling the meaning of the song for one of course but yeah also my connection with Marvin Gaye as an artist and who he was and what he represented having read a lot about him there's an amazing biography of Marvin Gaye which is called what's going on and the final days of the Motown sound or something like that the more I've learned and the more I've read and listened 
with him, the more I feel just so connected to him as a person and as an artist. So in those moments, I'm, I feel like I'm channeling him and there's a lot of him in my music and a lot of other artists in my music. So yeah, that's another thing I think I consciously and unconsciously do is that I'm thinking about those artists that inspire me and what they stand for too. I, there's a song and a line in the song, Giants, standing on the shoulders of the giants that have come before. And even though that song has political meaning, it's, there was also a part, in my mind, there was part of, in some ways, that's all I'm doing is I'm channeling all of the influences that I've absorbed. Hearing you speak about Marvin Gaye that way preemptively addresses or answers something I wanted to ask you about, which was your connection and your manifestation to what I would think of as like the tradition of soul and R&B message music. That seems to be a big part of what you're manifesting right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is huge. <laughs> and, and I have thought about what was it about that music when I was in my teens that it really penetrated me right to my core, you know. I have thought a bit about it, particularly in recent years and running up to the music that I'm making now as well because it feels like I'm revisiting a lot of that um, mm -hmm. more rootsy side of soul music. And I think for me, it's music, it's the struggle. It's the music of struggle. Where like with Wu-Tang Clan, it's defiance, you know. A lot of hip-hop and over here with UK hip-hop and grime, and it's in some ways it's music of protest, or it has been with certain artists. The same with the music of uh, the struggle with civil rights in the States. I think it just hit a chord with me. I, f I, found, I think I found it unfathomable, basically, when I was a kid. I, f I found it unfathomable that there was even once or ever this you know, segregation or the level of kind of racism that people were experiencing or other whatever the struggle was. And so it definitely was the meaning in the music. And I'm not sure I can totally explain why it is other than there's some part of me and my, and my empathy that just really had a strong connection to that music. And I wasn't a big listener. I'd, like lyrics haven't or went in the early part of my kind of musical education work weren't like, it was the music that sucked me in. It was melodies, it was rhythms, it was textures, it was synth synthesized, the sound of a certain synthesizer or a horn section or something. That was always the stuff that first grabbed me and pulled me in. But I listened so much to that music and so much to the Stevie Wonder, the canon of Stevie Wonder in between 70 and 80, particularly that, that period when he was in Electric Ladyland. And he was writing a lot of pretty politically charged stuff, which I must have been almost unavoidable for someone in his position and all of those Motown artists experiencing what they're experiencing. But, you know, songs like Big Brother or when you think about Happy Birthday even and stuff like that, massively pol politically charged lyrics. I would, I just listen to that stuff to death. And eventually, I guess those lyrics and the words caught on and, and went in. And that's the point where I was starting to ask questions and becoming maybe... I don't know whether you would call it a kind of awakening. I guess it probably was an awakening and probably something that was then really followed up and built on through university, my university experience. University should be about thinking critically and questioning, but the place that I studied, there was 
a big emphasis on cultural theory and just the study of wider culture and art and art is so much in so many different mediums there to reflect society and comment on society and so then when I started studying that stuff it just grew and broadened and but that's always stayed with me the defiance and the struggle whether it's James Brown or it's Gil Scott Heron I mean Gil Scott Heron yeah Curtis Mayfield even yeah Curtis Mayfield yeah yeah we'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break Bonus Tracks is the official blog of Spotlight On online at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. There you'll find additional artist interviews, music commentary, and more. Have a look. And now, back to Spotlight On. Did the music of like the late punk and post-punk era figure in at all for you? Because I think about a lot of those bands, you know, obviously The Clash, very similar in terms of having a point of view or even public image or that petrol emotion a lot of those bands were they had things to say beyond just let's go to the dance and everything's groovy no hmm. not 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 at all there's something that i think back on and i think probably a lot of it had to do with my social group and the time i was born in 80 so i was hitting like mid the mid 90s being so close to Bristol, I went to a school basically on the outskirts of Bristol. I lived in Bath, but we travelled, my brothers and I tra- travelled over to the edge of Bristol. And so the jungle scene, the drum and bass scene was really coming in into its own kind of ninety early 90s. And then you had the trip-hop thing with Portishead and Massive Attack. It was such an exciting time to be where we were that we were just consuming that kind of music. And it was... A lot of it was music with its origins in soul and funk and blues and, and that kind of lineage. And I guess with like bands like The Clash and Sex Pistols and all that stuff that was going on, it was slightly kind of earlier, right, which I was probably a bit young to have cottoned on at the time. But actually, I've listened way more retrospectively now and even bands like kind of Talk Talk, well, even talking heads and stuff like that. You know, oh, I've, forget it. I've yeah. Been, yeah, but it's been quite late really to that kind of party really. I just, but it's been really exciting for me to discover that stuff retrospectively. But yeah, completely just didn't feature. I mean, the guys that I was hanging out with at the time were drummer based DJs and, and skaters. And that was one kind of group that I was hanging out with. And that was just, that was the music, hip hop and electronic music it was just the soundtrack. How did you come to, be exposed to and play with West African musicians. Well, I, I don't know that part of your story. I studied in a little college in Devon called Dartington College of Arts, which is well known pretty much globally, I guess, as a, a sanctuary for artists, like fine artists, graphics people, dancers, musicians, because they have an amazing summer school, which still goes now. It was set up by a couple called the Elmshursts. I believe like in between the wars, but beginning of the last century, the emphasis and one of the reasons why I chose to go to that college above maybe some of the more pop orientated courses was there was an emphasis on what I guess we now call world music, which is, I always think it's kind of a lazy term, but it it, it does at least conjure up a a landscape of a broadness. and And so for example, they would have 
there was a big like connection with Southern Indian classical musicians. So we'd have Kabbalah players come in and do work workshops yeah. and we'd learn a bit of Konakal and and everything from Manco artists to Eastern European kind of singers to really broad. One of the things that just I touched on a bit when I was at university was West the West African stuff, but I suppose probably more fellow Kuti, to be honest, and more the Nigerian kind of Afrobeat sound and maybe a bit of the early kind of Ghana funk stuff. But when I left the university and I came back home, I had a song that was, I just used a sample, like a, harp, a sample of a harp, conventional harp. I, I wanted someone to play this sample live. And I went to a harpist and she was a great harpist and recorded it. It sounded cool. But I came across this guy, Musa Koyati, playing. He was a street performer in the Southwest. And, and so I I just went up to him after he'd played one time in the town. I said, I got this song. I, I, really, I love the sound of the instrument. I'd really love to have you play on it. Unwittingly walked into, through a kind of door that just took me somewhere completely different. He came to my house, actually, and he said, we, play, we played a little bit and I played in the song and we chatted for a while and we played a little bit, I think, as well. And he said, at the end of it, he said, I'm not going to play on your song. <laughs> but <laughs> but, I, but I'd, I'd love it if you would come and do some gigs with me. And so that was the connection with him then opened up. Bristol's a hugely multicultural city. And once I'd met Musa, I suddenly was meeting singers from Dakar, I was meeting percussionists from Senegal and Gambia, other Kora players from different areas and beginning to learn about the different styles of playing Kora and the different instruments, the bolong or these other stringed instruments. And there's a huge family of strings, stringed instruments from that general, well, the whole area of West Africa, which was once kind of one huge kingdom. He would also give me stuff to read. So I, I read the story of the kind of legend of a, a character called Sundiata, who was, he's kind of like a fable and the origins of their musical tradition. And it's just there in their houses all the time, kind of day in, day out and eating with them and playing and meeting aunties and uncles and cousins. And it was just an amazing experience. It was a totally, a total, again, a kind of a awakening into a totally different culture. I was really immersed in for a good few years. For one, it just taught me so much about rhythm and the origin of rhythm. And really, even with harmony as well, with chords and that, that language and how having that experience really taught me that just absolutely everything, you can hear everything from that roots music. I've heard people say that like, everything comes from Africa and uh, my experience is that you can hear Debussy and the Chora. They're using all of those same jazz chords, six nines and alterations and extensions. It's all there. I just had no idea. It uh, was an, an amazing window into this com really complex, but also really simultaneously really simple way of communicating music. Mm-hmm. I love the use of repetition and almost trance in a lot of the music. They really know how to milk a melody. And when a melody is that beautiful, just cycling around that same thing. And the thing about repetition with the kind of patterns that they're playing is that over a number of cycles, you hear different things coming out of that same pattern. You might hear a different rhythmic emphasis or a note 
that you haven't noticed yeah. or melody that you haven't noticed. And it totally is that trance thing. It could be like four to six note melodies that just, they ring out different after seven minutes of it. You do, you hear the different emphasis or a different harmonic variant. It's really fascinating. Incredible. Yeah. It was what it was the thing I noticed the first time I saw Tony Allen. Actually, mm. and I, I arrived at this gig and it was a kind of big gig and a big venue in Bristol. And I remember hearing the first uh, kind of opening of this tune. I was like, oh, this is cool. It wasn't kind of grabbing me. And then a minute in, you're like, it's starting to pique your interest a bit more. And as it goes on, it all kind of infects you. The repetition, but the subtle differences every time he plays that same loop or, or whatever. And it's, it's the same thing with the rhythm and the way that they play rhythm and the emphasis of, or the way that they offset us or play a, a certain beat lazy or the way that he plays drums is, I find it completely fascinating. I could just listen to the drum, like the drums on loop, just him playing the drums for, yeah. So the, for the last couple of months, you've been dropping singles. Yeah. First of all, I want to give you some of my perception and then I would love to have you wipe it away if I'm wrong. <laughs> One is tracks come out credited just to you. Tracks come out attributed to you and or Supalong. Mm -hmm. I think that there may be some difference in either the subject matter or slightly stylistic differences between the two, but something that seems to tie it all together, the art, actually. I've been fascinated with the art for the tracks. And before we talk about the music itself, I wonder if what's going on there. There's some unifying force there in the visuals. The unifying force is, is one guy. So the artwork for Superlung and the artwork for my recent singles are all done by a guy called Patch, who is a Bristol artist, graphic artist. Superlung came first in the kind of chronology of the art, and it was after working with Patch the super long stuff that I then approached him because I loved his stuff. I love his work, but also I just felt like he could do a really great job in interpreting and representing the meaning of this new stuff, which is definitely really important to me that the artist is listening and feeling. And it was a fascinating protest working with him because he was explaining that he puts the songs on and puts the song quite often will loop, put the song on loop and just, try and really get inside what the song is i don't know if manifesting visually is the right kind of d description but he just nails it he nails the feeling of with both projects what we were trying to or, or what, what the music that we were making so that's it yeah he uh, patch has been doing the stuff for both projects yeah beautiful beautiful work so bold and striking in an era where the art is often small or relegated to little thumbnails it's very effective the almost like line art style it works well as a large iconography but it's also very bold when it gets stuck in the spotify <laughs> real estate it's a hard thing to do isn't it for it to work both on those two very different scales and I'm, as i'm talking to you now i have my monitor my screensaver behind you is the artwork for utopia which is the first song I released in this campaign. But it's super blown up just because of the way that how Apple is with screensavers and stuff. When I say it's super blown up, the fingers of the hands are like the size of my head. And you can see all this incredible detail and the 
granular detail that he's gone into just in the rock pool and the reflections and which is everything is created by hand and, and even the texture of the paper it looks like paper like a kind of handmade kind of paper yeah yeah he's really thinking about both that really granular detail but then also a lot of the conversations that we have is how is this going to look as a tiny square thumbnail in apple music or spotify or whatever else and those bold colors striking colors which i think is another thing that he just i mean it's hard to, to, just choosing one i don't know if you've ever de decorated your a room in your house or something trying to just choose just one color to go on your wall it takes could take months to choose that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's just yeah. he's just got it he's just it just nails the color. You used the word that I wasn't going to use, so thank you for giving me tacit permission, which is the word campaign. And I was, I've been very curious since watching the songs drop. What is the context here? What are we building up to? Is this, is this an album? Are these a series of songs that you're going to decide what to do with later? Or is this already in the context of a plan? It's a bit of both, I would say. The first thing to say is the way that the streaming world has been going and particularly the rules of the game as set by Spotify, which, of course, are the, globally the biggest player and certainly in our territory, in like the UK and, and Europe. And I guess, but I guess the States as well. I don't know if you know the stats. Yeah, but for sure. Yeah. And so the rules of engagement dictate that, for example, like they'll only playlist one one track from a release and a release can be a single or an ep or an album or a double album or whatever or at least this is my understanding of it so if there's i mean Lawrence, you can set me straight on certain things because i'd mostly leave this stuff to ollie at my label who is very good at all the analytics and stuff but there would be a really good practical reason for doing that but that's not the reason why i've primarily why i've decided to be releasing singles the way that i have been and actually, the reason why primarily I've been doing singles, I, I do have a roadmap for which singles are coming up. But actually, the two albums that I've made of my own in the past have been such massive undertakings in the way that I make music because I'm recording most of the stuff. I'm mostly writing, well, I'm writing the songs, but I'm recording the stuff myself and I'm editing and I'm mixing often. And that whole process per track is just huge. It's so lengthy that I'm finding I'm shutting myself away for a, lot, a long period of time to make that music. And then I'm kind of emerging at the end. There's definitely a catharsis at the end of the process, but it's also exhausting. Yeah, I would imagine. I'm finding working on a track-by-track -track basis and being adaptable, for example. So... If I'm feeling something in the moment, I'm really connecting with a song and it's not necessarily in the brief of what's coming up. Ollie and the guys at Soho Collective are just really open to being adaptable for me to say, well, I know we finished this tune, but actually this song is way more meaningful for me right now. And, and I kind of feel like I've got to jump on this and do this and finish this. The bite-sized nature of doing it track by track is, first of all, just feels like a huge anvil lifted from my shoulders. Yeah. But also it just means that actually sometimes quite close to a deadline, a couple of months out, if I just want to jump on something else and do something fresh, do something new and just 
in the moment, which actually the first two releases are really recently written and recently recorded and came together really quickly. My methods in the studio and the way that I'm working has transformed and changed quite a lot, partly maybe because of the way that I'm doing this now. For example, like the last song that I released, Sunny Side Up, is all single source recordings. Like the drum track for that tune was recorded with one mic, and it's this mic that I'm chatting on now. My method, I've made my method just way, way simpler. And I'm trying to be adaptive and I'm trying to listen to what's important for me right now. And that feels really great. And then at the end of that process, we're really aware that there will be some kind of compiling of those tunes. There will undoubtedly be other projects that I'll embark on, a bit like the Superlung project, which is an album. The Brief is making an album and it's really intense. And I might do it during a summer or during an autumn or a certain period where I will just hover myself away and I'll become a, a hermit. Wear the same clothes for a couple of months to not wash. <laughs> kind of just get in, the, get in that place. But for now, it just feels like there's other stuff that's running alongside that work and there's family and there's life and other creativity. And I'm just really enjoying taking it at that pace and being adaptable. Don't hear a lot of artists emphasize the utility or some of the positive aspects of of what I would call feeding the algorithm, right? Like you're very aware that Spotify and the streaming platforms have this preference for a steady stream of content. And you're aware of if I release it all in the context of one album, I get one whack at the algorithm. It also sounds like you're saying, okay, I know that. Now I can set that aside. But the way it's allowed you to unlock your creative approach happens to also dovetail to how the commercial marketplace is working right now. And whether it stays this way for any length of time or forever is less important than the fact that there's this really convenient overlap right now between a method that works for you sort of psycho-spiritually <laughs> and yeah. the commercial marketplace. And that's a good thing. Oh, 100%. I've enjoyed this period of making music more than I have done for a long, long time. And it, it, is that maybe is that kind of necessity is the mother invention thing as well, where, I mean, you know, Ollie and I discussed like the frequency of when we might be releasing and there's, you know, for example, the next single that I'm releasing has a significance in the date that it's being released in September in relation to the kind of theme of the song and stuff like that so we know how we're mapping stuff out uh, and so i do have deadlines but it feels like healthy deadlines because it's you give so much of yourself to an album making an album and even if you're an artist going into a studio away from your home and you're working with a producer and an engineer so you do your bit and you leave at the end of the day you're still giving huge amounts of your energy and your soul i think to that process and for me, I guess I have that added thing of I don't leave at the end of the day and somebody else edits my part or I don't leave at the end of the day and somebody mixes the track. I'm doing that bit as well. And I'm loving doing that bit as well because the last two albums or the two albums that I've released so far were mixed by a good friend of mine, Greg Freeman, who's he's also based, happens to be based in Berlin, although he's from the UK. He's an incredible mix engineer. But there was part of me that just wanted to take on the challenge of kind of relearning mix technique and 
getting into the sounds and the sculpting of the sounds, kind of from a nerdy perspective to mm-hmm. some degree. But it's so creative and it's I love I'm loving learning another layer of learning because it's been kind of a long time, been years since I've mixed my own stuff. So every part of the process is, has been wonderful and really intense. But it's kind of cool because it's only intense for one track. It's not intense for 10 or 11 or 12 months down the line, you know. I've wondered for a while why artists who aren't doing the thing of holding up in a studio for two weeks or four months or whatever it is, who have the ability to have a home studio or access to a studio or are solo producers. I've wondered for a while why that model hasn't taken off more of releasing a steady stream of music and then deciding later how and if it merited being packaged up in an album context or a physical context. It seemed to me there's so much benefit of doing it in retrospect, right? Like you could take a mercenary approach and say, I've put out 16 tracks. Let's take the 12 that performed the best and make that the album or go back and find the themes or I don't know. It just, it seems like it would be a fun, interesting way to do it. And I can't believe it hasn't caught on yet. I wonder, you know, with, with artists, with release contracts, whether some of that stuff comes from the record, the record side of things, because I do remember, well, when I was making the first two albums, when I was chatting with the label guys about it, they were like, I was saying, because with the second album that I made, it had been a few years since I'd released anything. And I was like, why don't we put, why don't we just put this track out this time? And they were like, no, we want to have the whole album in the bag before we begin the release campaign because so much of the strength of the campaign is going to be how you connect the dots and how the first track builds to the next and when you're placing the singles and having all the promo ready to go and the videos, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted that whole product. And it and with other albums that I've worked on, it's been really similar. And even those albums where people have had a long list or they've even made more tracks than they need for the album the running order of the album and track list and everything has still been done before they start releasing so maybe part of that is down to sonar collectives kind of openness to doing things this way and and i guess maybe just the relationship as it's built up between them when i proposed this way of working on he was like yeah let's try it you know it says a lot about trusting the artist right like trust the artist and maybe the artist blows a deadline or maybe the artist has one song out of 12 that actually doesn't fit or whatever it is but trust the artist there's a huge amount of trust on both sides i trust those guys i've been working with them from 2012 was the first release that i did with a a collab long time collaborator guy called darren emerson in a duo project called the white lab which is a kind of house dance music thing and that was the first thing i released with them and since then, really, I just have always felt like, first and foremost, which is the most important thing for me, is that they respect where the music's coming from and they, they're excited about the music. They give a shit about what I think and the trajectory that I want to go on and how I want to do stuff. And they've been amazing like that. Like Ollie, we have Zoom calls like this regularly and he's so open and so easy. Nine times out of ten, if I propose something, he's like, yeah cool and then it kind of happens i mean he's he's very certain about what he thinks about strategy and all of those things but just very very open 
I feel really fortunate actually because I think they're really good at what they do and I think they're super passionate about the music and the music first and foremost. They're very patient. Whenever I'm getting a bit nervous about something and I've spoken to other artists who in the climate today you can focus on certain things that maybe is not so healthy like this track's not doing so well or it's not been streaming or it didn't catch on or you didn't get radio and stuff like that you know it's five minutes on the phone to those guys and yeah i get off just feeling better about the whole thing because they're always reminding me that the song or the campaign or the album is a success if it's been meaningful to me and if you feel if i feel like i've made great music and that's it that's incredible the one other thing i wanted to say to you was that hearing you describe how you've simplified your approach to recording it actually is a bit of a key to me into what i was hearing because something that has struck me about the most recent work is that it has this almost difficult to articulate blend of that very classic soul era sound, but not dated. It's a modern classic sound. And now it makes total sense because you're taking a, an approach that was very similar to how they recorded back then, but with contemporary songwriting and equipment and et cetera. For fans of music of that era or fans of music of today like you don't have to make that choice it's really amazing so I, i've enjoyed what i've heard so far and i can't wait to hear what comes next it's amazing to hear you say that because that's yeah it's been really important to me the method of making the music and i guess holding the performance as up as the kind of big thing one thing just to end on before before we split is there have been a couple of really key people who've inspired my kind of approach recently i've loved listening to the artist Theo Katzman, who is part of the band Wolfpack, but has gone out on his own more recently. And it's just the ethos that he honoured in creating the, the, the album that he made, Be The Wheel, recently, which was all recorded to tape and it was all full takes and that kind of stuff. And really that's where I feel like I'm headed and I feel like so much of the essence of those really great old soul records was about that it was about performance in the moment and it's like the more i can strip away the technical stuff that gets in the way and i'm still on that process you know who knows that next time we speak i might be on there may be no computer in the studio uh, <laughs> maybe there's just a tape machine but i'm just enjoying it so much honoring that kind of method that way of making music it comes across it's not retro it's very contemporary sounding, but it has the best elements of those old sonics. So it's really nice. Thank you. Oh, it's been so great to chat. When you're in the UK, hit me up and we'll come see a show or something. It'd be, it'd be I would love to... that. I would love that. I've only been over a couple of times in the sort of post-COVID era, but I haven't been over since earlier this year. So I do hope to make my way. And I have not been on the continent since before COVID. I need to get to Paris or I'm going to die. <laughs> oh. uh, well, me too. Yeah. France in general and yeah, out in the greenery in France as well. I'd love to. Yeah. You know, there's a big World Cup about to happen in France. It's the Rugby World Cup is happening in September in France. So, Do you go out for rugby? Is that, is that a thing for you? I grew up where we are in the West Country is big rugby country and I've played as a kid and stuff. I don't really follow it massively now, but 
I think the occasion, anything that's kind of celebratory like that, whether it's like the Olympics or the World Cup or the tennis or the cricket, I don't know. It's just good vibes that go in for anything that has that kind of thing, that carnival kind of atmosphere. I am looking forward to it. I think I'll probably tune into a lot of that stuff. I don't know if I'll get to make it out there, but there's potentially a gig in November in Paris, which I'm super excited about. So, I think in a world of so much media fragmentation that rallying around some of those fun communal events isn't something people need to apologize for. It's just fun. There's a lot of baggage, and I'm not saying it's all simple all the time, but but sometimes it's fun to be to get caught up in those things. One thing that happens with me definitely is I can get quite intense into particularly the kind of politics and social stuff, and I read a lot of news, and I have to be really careful that I get enough distance from that stuff. I guess particularly with the most obvious kind of thing of today with the climate stuff and everything, I have to be just really mindful of how I connect with that stuff. Yeah. Actually, I think those what's what those events are great for is just escaping that stuff. Same thing with someone kind of binging a box set on a weekend. It's like sometimes our brains need that, right? Sometimes you need that let off or that distance from that stuff. So that'll be me for September is the rugby. <laughs> that'll be my that'll be my escape, I expect. Thank you so much, Pete Joseph. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Stay in touch and stay tuned because coming up right now is Utopia by Pete Joseph.
Look up, yeah, yeah. 